the neurodiverse partner doesn't often get human behavior and motivation. And a lot of it is unspoken and it's just assumed. The goal for the coach is to make the invisible visible. I try to help couples understand that a neurotypical neurodivergent couple can actually be a power couple because you've got those extreme talents and abilities. You've got the deficits, but when you work together, when you put all that together and you stop trying to be the same, it can be really amazing. The pause button is critical. Pick the environment you decide to hatch something. It's okay to say, look, I'm not in a place right now. I can work with you on this. So many folks make the mistake of trying to be as equal as possible in their relationship and in their responsibilities. And there's just a lot of resentment that goes into who's doing what and why isn't it spread out. What the neurodivergent partner needs is just the right software. We can talk about labels and diagnosis and pop psychology. But I think the point is, though, that there's a geometric relationship here. When you're neurodiverse, if I give you a skill or a strategy, you're not going to go from one to two. You can go from one to four. This is season three of the Your Neurodiverse Relationship podcast, which is for adults in all kinds of neurodiverse relationships, not just romantic partnerships. I'm your host, Jody Carlton, and I've spent close to two decades growing in my understanding of how our different brains influence the way we understand and relate to each other. I'm neurotypical, and I have many neurodiverse relationships of my own. Through the years, I've helped several thousand people understand themselves and their loved ones. This podcast is a place where I come together with others to talk about their journeys. I've got a great lineup of guests talking about things like masking, traits of neurodivergent folks, traits of neurotypical folks, what kind of things cause difficulties in our neurodiverse relationships, but also some of the wonderful things about our neurodiverse relationships. Also, this season is a video cast where you can enjoy watching on YouTube or you can listen to us on the podcast like you have before. If you're really enjoying this podcast and if you've gotten something out of it, please leave us a review because reviews really matter. And we wanna get this out there to as many people as possible so they can benefit from it just like you. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe so you'll get notifications of upcoming podcasts and other videos that I post there as well. Welcome. What will we talk about today? My guest today is my colleague and friend, David Glick. David is a therapist and coach. He's had a thriving practice here in the Atlanta metro area and some of the surrounding communities. And one of the things that his group specializes in is autistic individuals, families, couples. Also, I think it's important to add that David is neurodivergent himself, and he is going to share uh, a good bit about what, how he came to understand and learn about himself and how that really helps him to help other people who are neurodivergent. He's just well known as being one of the best around. And I'm thrilled that he's actually branching out into the coaching realm so that he can offer services to people worldwide, which as we all know, is very much needed. Dave, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. An honor and a pleasure. Yeah, so you and I have recently gotten to know each other better as colleagues, but I just wanna say to the listeners that I've known about you for a while here in the Atlanta area and one of my clients years ago who was coming to me with their teenage son um, had an older son that had worked with you. And that was the first time I heard about you. And they just absolutely sung your praises. And Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Since I transitioned out of the actual counseling space, I've sent quite a few people over your way. If you would tell our listeners a little bit about who you are. 
Sure. I'm very happy to be here. And I have a lot of praise for Jody. She's wonderful in the work she does. And very grateful. She, she and Dr. Holmes have brought me into their circle. Bring a lot of gratitude to to have people I can talk to in the same space. For a long time, when I opened the practice, we were an island. I'm glad we're not anymore. So essentially, my name is Dave Glick. I went to college thinking I would be in finance. And I did come out of college with a degree in international relations from Boston University. I worked in international finance for a whopping six months in New York City and realized it was not for me. I didn't like it and it didn't like me. So we parted the company and I wanted to do something different. So I was in special education classes for most of my academic career. And I really found it to be fascinating. And I saw the good it did for me. It essentially saved my life. I had the same special education teacher for all four years of high school. And we were extremely close and I'm still close with her now. She's 82 and retired in Arizona. Mm. So I went back to Boston University in 1993 and got a degree in special education and another degree in social work. It's a dual degree program at B. Because I had the special ed degree, I was landing a lot of mental health jobs that were a hybrid of mental health and special education, working in the autism space, developmental disability space as well. And the LD space moved to Atlanta in 1999 and worked in managed care for about three years, where again, I did a lot of work again with people on the spectrum and getting them appropriate services, which was Mm -hmm. quite tricky. We're going back 20 years ago, especially because, you know, they serve Bell South employees was in all nine Southern states. So, you know, trying to set up services in remote parts of Mississippi and Alabama. And the such as one. I left that to open my private practice in the fall of 2003. We are turning 20 this year. And I called the practice. Thank you. Thank you so much. You'll be invited to the party. All Um, right. Called it Triad Psych. And Triad, where that comes from, is the approach I learned in Boston was a combination of special education, psychotherapy, and behavior analysis. So we replicated it with our triad, which also indicates control. Because we like to show that we can bring control to situations where there is no control. That's a lot of what we do. And it's very necessary in the special needs space as well. I opened it up by myself in 2003 in one room and hung out a shingle. And I wondered if anyone would show up and everybody showed up. It was very fortunate. I bet they did. Everybody showed up. And we were the first clinic in Atlanta to be able to work in the space and take insurance to. The few practitioners who were there were all private. I own because I came out of the managed care space. I wanted to be able to take insurance and work with the population too. So that's been part of our success. So we're now three locations. We have a staff of about nine people at triad and I bring on new clinicians. I train them in the triad approach. We provide all different types of counseling, coaching, executive functioning, coaching. IEP advocacy, Mm -hmm. expert witness work. There's not much we don't do. The only thing we don't do is prescribe medicine. Right. Right. I want to tell everybody that Dave is branching out into the coaching space, which will give him the ability to work with people globally like I have. And I'm so excited that he's doing this because we just... I didn't do it without you, Jody. (laughs) You're the inspiration. I'm happy to pull you into this and get you... I'm going to be pulled. 
There's so much need. I did do coaching in the 90s. I was one of the founding members. It was the ADDLD National Coaching Network. And it was founded by Nancy Rady, whose okay. husband, Dr. Rady, wrote the book Driven to Distraction. I think any therapist who works with the neurodivergent clients or patients, you got to have a coaching streak in you. You have to be able to set expectations, to form a bond with the person. But what we know is that the population does very well with high standards and very poorly with low standards. So yeah. you've got to have a bit of a coaching gene in you. And coaching is, is very solution-focused and somewhat directive. And I found that for me, coaching was more of my style anyway as a therapist. And for the neurodivergent folks that I worked with, which was mostly teenagers, young adults, in the beginning when I was in the counseling space, funny enough, I didn't work with couples back then. I was actually terrified. I was terrified to work with couples. And a lot of the reason for me was that I was in a marriage that was falling apart and I just felt totally not equipped to work with couples. It's ironic now. That's who I help the most. But anyway, as a coach, a lot of the things, the way I describe it to folks is I use sports analogies a lot. A coach is mm -hmm. someone who really encourages the players to develop themselves, but is well, able to... let me box. interrupt. I'm sorry, but I'm going to qualify that with a good coach lets people develop themselves. A good coach builds autonomy and skill that we've all at some point, especially our generation, have had some very bad coaches along yeah. the way. So yes, a good coach does what you're saying, but yeah. you have to define your version of coaching. I agree. And that's true. You're never working your way away from having a coach. I've often told my clients, I work myself out of a job here. My goal is to work myself out of a job for you to be able to Absolutely. do what you need to do without me. But I want to circle back with you. There's two things I want to circle back to. I'd like for us to talk about the labels as they've changed because you've definitely been there all along, especially with the insurance industry. Let's go back more. Why the neurodivergent population? Most of us in this space have a reason. There's a reason why we went there. So what's that reason for you? I'm neurodivergent. Like I said, I had the same special ed teacher for all four years of high school. My mother was a school and a clinical psychologist as okay. well. I was younger when she was getting her doctorate. So I think uh, I helped her get her doctorate. I think I was the subject of a couple of research papers, to be honest with you. And then also, you know, you had this emergence of learning disabilities in the 70s mm -hmm. and especially the 80s. And a lot of the big wigs in that space were in the metropolitan New York City area, which is where I grew up. So you know, as a child and my mother at Columbia University, a lot of them worked on me. I, I want to actually <laughs> highlight that because um, there's also some not so great psychologists out there. And I don't want to knock down our profession here, but I've had so many people come to me and say they went to get testing. Mm -hmm. We're told they couldn't be autistic. They couldn't be neurodivergent because they have a college degree. That's a huge problem. And I'm going to take it. And I mean, I'm going to expand upon it as well for you. The whole idea was if you're getting good grades, you're fine. Now, yeah. I know what it's like to get good grades. I know what it's like to get horrible grades as well. But the fact is, even if you have a college degree, you can very well be neurodivergent. I mean, Elon Musk. Exactly. <laughs> came out and made it clear he's on the spectrum. A lot of historical figures clearly were, and nobody knew what it was, including Benjamin Franklin, certainly Einstein, 
Alfred Hitchcock, I have no question. There was an actor who was in a lot of big 70s and 80s stuff named Ted Knight. He clearly was on the spectrum. He was in Caddyshack. He was on the Mary Tyler Moore show. I think Bill Um, Gates, Steve Jobs, those guys likely. There's a lot of ignorance out there, and it's very scary. When I first entered the field, autism and Asperger's wasn't very sexy. It is now. What was very sexy then was ADD because the publication of the book driven to distraction. I was in Boston and the two psychiatrists who wrote it were out of Boston. We then saw a proliferation of people who read the book and felt they were ADD experts. I had the degree in special education and that just wasn't sufficient. I've heard all kinds of silliness like you talked about where Oh, you can't be on the spectrum or you can't be learning disabled because X, Y, Z. This pattern of neurodivergence, generation after generation after generation, and we know that there's a genetic link. These folks are growing up, getting in relationships and having right. children. So they're... I teach a class called Autism Through the Years. And on a positive note, the severity of the cases we're seeing is going down, way down. And what we did get right or what the field did get right was we have to have early intervention. Throwing the kitchen sink at these young kids Mm -hmm. at the age zero is what's necessary. So, you know, in in the the class, there's a picture of a man throwing a kitchen sink that I put up on the PowerPoint. So what we're seeing is that, you know, let's not skimp with early intervention. Can't emphasize that enough. I know I saw that in my own daughter. We've often talked about what the difference would be in her if she hadn't had early intervention starting around six months of age. We had the kitchen sink. We threw it all her way. And I I can't even really imagine what would be different for her. But I know that a lot of the brain wiring, a lot of the way her brain was starting to form was hugely affected. Got to get them while the central nervous system is still very malleable. So I'm now at 30 years. My first job in the field was 1993. I've seen a lot of changes, mostly positive. There's always some. In the class, I talk about the film Napoleon Dynamite. For the most part, we're seeing a lot of Napoleons and Pedros that we see from the film. Okay. So for people who haven't seen that film, tell us what that means. Well, Napoleon Dynamite is probably the best film I've seen made about kids with special needs. I don't like it when people keep it entirely in an autism space. But I think the two films that do this the best are What's Eating Gilbert Gray, Napoleon Dynamite, and then there was a television show on ABC called Speechless. It's a film about two high school students who are clearly on the spectrum. They never specifically say it in the film, but it's very obvious. You see how their neurodivergence enables them to do things other kids can't. Kids who are Neuro, neurotypical. We and call so it superpowers in our household. That gives them their autism superpowers. The beauty of these three examples is that it also shows the other baggage that comes along with it, the personal problems, the family dynamics, the role in the community. You're mm-hmm. dealing with perceptions in the community when you have a special needs teenager yeah. as well. So it showed the whole picture, which is really positive. But I think the most positive thing is that we've gone from deficit model thinking with a disorder to -hmm. now one where we're not just looking at what's wrong with the people, we're looking at what's right. And when they can activate their superpowers, thank God, it's amazing. I struggled so hard to learn. Mm. Learning was very hard for me. And in the eighties, I carried a label. We don't see around anymore called perceptually impaired, which relates to a learning disability. Mm -hmm. I I had to learn differently, but once I got it, I got it better than anyone. 
About the superpowers, I used to work with a neuropsychologist and we did a lot of testing. We see the spikes and the valleys. And, valleys. Okay. and so there's these really amazing t abilities. And then there's these deficits, whereas a neurotypical person is going to be more evened out. A lot of the folks listening to this podcast or watching us are in relationships and they're trying to figure out their relationship. So many folks try make the mistake of trying to be as equal as possible in their relationship and in their responsibilities. And there's just a lot of resentment that goes into who's doing what and why isn't it spread out. And I try to help couples understand that a neurotypical neurodivergent couple can actually be a power couple because you've got those extreme talents and abilities. You've got the deficits, but when you work together, when you put all that together and you stop trying to be the same, it can be really amazing. What are your thoughts about I, that's just not couple relationships. That's any relationship, really. Yeah, I mean, it's all about leveraging what it is you've got. Mm -hmm. And then also taking, you know, deficit you may have and finding a way to correct it. But as I mentioned a few minutes ago, that I think what's important about that is this process of correcting or compensating for the deficit area sometimes ends up becoming a huge strength, too. I would like to think of a concrete example. Once we get it, we really get it. Yeah. So for example, you know, my social skills were pretty poor all the way into my twenties. When I got to graduate school, they're evaluating you as a person. It's not just your grades, especially when I got to social work, they could remove you from the program without cause. Thank goodness, as painful as it was for me, when the professor said, look, you're not going to say these things. You're going to handle yourself differently. I didn't really know I had a problem with that. So me having to learn social skills very deliberately, I'm now very good at them. I still will miss cues and sometimes things people say, but in the end, I do pretty well with it. So again, how do we compensate for the deficit area? And then how do we turn it into a strength? That's what I always aim to do with my clients. Let's take lemons, turn it into lemonade, and you'll be shocked how far we get. Having both partners aware of each side's strengths or weaknesses is critical, right? And we can't expect everyone to be equal, whether you're neurodiverse or not. With my own daughter, who's 20, she is Gen Z, and we only have conversations in our household about their generation. And she is autistic, but she is probably more socially capable than most of her peers. And it's because she has had to work so right. hard through the years to understand it. And she can read people very well. Now, that doesn't mean that she doesn't, like you said, sometimes miss those cues. Sometimes she feels very uncomfortable. Well, most of the time she feels very uncomfortable in social situations, but she knows how. Play the socially appropriate script and she knows how to do it really well, whereas a lot of her peers are still terrified of making right. a phone call. Or Well, you have to also understand with these Gen Zs, COVID didn't do us any favors that oh, this virtual so learning that we're seeing, we have a surge of patients who won't leave the house at yeah. this point. Pretty I, I that, yeah. a generation that didn't interact because they were raised, the first generation that was fully raised on smartphone mm -hmm. technology. So we already had that layer to them. And then you add COVID in their prime developmental social developmental right. years. And you're right. It's been really devastating for a lot of people. And so now we have to work pretty hard to get those folks caught up socially. Totally. Agree. Absolutely. And it's not easy, but that's the work we're tasked with. I think 
For me, I was so bad at understanding people and what motivated people. It was in graduate school that a mentor gave me a book by Aristotle. And it's important to remember that psychology is just an offshoot of philosophy. So when I read this book by Aristotle, I said, I have to get the social work degree. I'm so fascinated by what motivates people to do what they do. It was a weak area for me. It was not a strength. But then several years ago, when a police department asked me to profile a case for them, I thought, gee, I've come a long way. Once we get it, we really get it. And that's the key yeah, thing. That, that bleeds into a merit that I think the issue when working with the population is that the neurodiverse partner doesn't often get human behavior and motivation. And a lot of it is unspoken and it's just assumed. The goal for the coach, I think, or the, whoever you are, you're a clinician, you're a coach, is to make the invisible visible. That we don't like things we can't see or touch. We like things that are concrete. So what I do, and I'm sure you do it, is you take, you know, the, the strange and make it familiar. You take something that seems that has no structure and you make it tangible. Wow. Now we can really, really get something done. You're absolutely right. And that's what I've done as a clinician and as a coach. And now through things like this podcast, the videos that I have on YouTube, it's resonating with them. So it's like you said, you take the invisible and make it visible. And so then they go and they listen to this or they read books sometimes. That's when all of a sudden it's like this framework that's been right. invisible is now, oh, I recognize this. I recognize myself. I recognize my partner. It's so empowering to find that framework. Right. Um, and once the person has it, they'd like to run with it. Yes. And that can be problematic. I think it's important that everybody also recognize that being neurotypical, being neurodivergent is not the full identity of any human being. I don't know if I've shared with you, but I talk about it a lot. So some of these folks may have heard it, but I have an analogy of a backpack that we go through life with this backpack. People listening to the podcast are probably so sick of hearing me talk. About it. It's so important. That we wear this backpack and everything in it makes us who we are. It's our DNA, our genetics, sure. but our experiences and our beliefs and our values and everything, all of that makes up who a person is. And so that neurodivergence is in there. Being neurotypical, it's in there. But so are all the other aspects of who we are. And I think it's important. It's more the neurotypical partner that I find really runs with it, they'll really hyper-focus on the neurodivergence is the problem. It's the problem. This is the reason why we are having trouble and you need to go fix yourself. So what are your thoughts about that for our listeners? About just about fixing a, a the problem? Well, a neurotypical partner who wants their neurodivergent partner to go get fixed. I don't think it's entirely unreasonable, but the question is fixed. What does fixed look like? What, what does mean? fixed mean? There's a lot of room for interpretation in the term fixed. So we got to determine what fixed looks like. For example, what I like to do with my coaching clients is I give them certain rules to live by. Okay. And I said, don't vary from these rules unless you absolutely have to. So for example, to put up a picture in all of our offices. I've been saying it for years and I'll get this done, but I need to put up a picture of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and put up on the computer. I really just need it on the wall so I can point to it. I say, you have a choice in how you interact with people. You can either move people up Maslow's hierarchy or move them down. 
the more you move people up Maslow's hierarchy, the better off you're going to be. And it doesn't always occur to them. And we're looking at a lot of anxiety present, a lot of fear. You have to remember that people who are born on the spectrum are basically born with PTSD. What Not, do you mean by that? It's something I always noticed in terms of behaviors, the hypervigilance that you're always looking for the threat or what could happen. And it's now been proven that brain scans of individuals on the spectrum have an enlarged amygdala. Now, I do a lot of work with people's amygdalas because when I'm not working with neurodivergent people, I'm working with cops. So, for example, one of my contracts is that if there's a shooting, I have to be in front of everyone affected within 48 hours. Many times, police have been caught in a situation where their amygdala gets overly fired up, and that's the part of the brain charged with keeping you alive. Part of the limbic so system. That's that fight or flight right. mechanism. The whole flight, that, fight or flight that can that take accident. over everything. Correct. Now, we know that people in certain professions, that's going to be more sensitive or more reactive than others. But what we do know about the autism population is that they're born with a reactive amygdala to begin with. For example, so if you're already hypervigilant, you may have a predisposition towards being very scared or very nervous. That can bleed through into social interactions. The way I explain it to my clients is think about a boss you love. That boss didn't move you down Maslow's hierarchy. He moved you up Maslow's hierarchy. Yes, there are risks. There are things to be afraid of. The world can be a scary, threatening place. It doesn't mean we have to give in to it. So yes. again, it's more about managing, just providing new tools. I'm just th sitting here thinking about and processing what you're saying. It really makes sense because so many of these, well, pretty much all of these kids born with autism also have sensory systems, sensory cortex that's not processing. Sensory integration problem too. It's activating that limbic system because your brain can't process and interpret the information that's coming in. Right. Too much information comes in and the system will shut down. And if this information keeps coming in, the system may act out in a way that's very unpleasant too. Yes. Which looks like a tantrum, but it's really not. Right. It's more sensitive. Yeah. And so for example, what we can do with that is a lot of the neurodiverse clients I work with don't realize they don't have to address everything right away. The anxiety is so high, there's a need to blurt something out or act impulsively because of the anxiety. But teaching them to press the pause button is a huge amount of the work you and I do. In my communication program, I literally teach it as a tool. It's the pause button. Right. Yep. The pause button is critical. And then getting them to understand that you can pick the environment you decide to hatch something that getting them to understand it's okay to say no is yeah. huge. Or it's okay to say, look, I'm not in a place right now. I can work with you on this. I do use a lot of exercise. I force my clients to really work out because it's not just for their health, but for their anxiety, their mental health. And a big technique is if you're heading into a situation that makes you nervous, you give yourself a killer workout first. Mm. One that you walk out of the gym, you make sure you're hurting. Not very regular. It regulates the sensory system too. It's a snowball in the right direction for calming that central nervous system down. And back to early intervention, that's so much a part of what is done in early intervention is the occupational therapy, the sensory integrative therapy, helping the brain to regulate and helping children. I have a great friend who's an occupational therapist. As a matter of fact, she was my daughter's occupational therapist, first person who introduced me to sensory processing 
back in 2003 and I'm still in touch with her and I've asked her, what about my adults on the spectrum? She's like, we can still regulate it. Even yeah, occupational can. therapy and that word occupation, people hear that and they think it's career coach. It's not that at all. The ones that are trained in sensory integrative therapies can help you learn how to regulate your brain. The sensory diet, which is not food, but it, what the body needs in terms of the physical sensations or input or what to avoid. To help sensory diet is everything. And it's yeah. even more important for our population. And for everybody, really, but so much so for neurodivergence. I think you and I could probably talk for hours and I'm going to have to have you back. But before you go, I want to circle back to the labels because this is a big, big, big topic in the neurodivergence world, the autistic world. I know myself, even in the last five years, morphed from using terms like Asperger's and autism and high functioning and neurodivergent, mm -hmm. neurodiversity. There's just so much. And I remember I actually talked to Temple Grandin about this. I don't know um, if you knew, but I've interviewed her a couple of times for her book. I didn't, but I'll certainly go listen. I think Temple Grandin's Grandin, amazing. She's phenomenal. And she's a big proponent in coaching. We're seeing a large issue right now in my clinic where the parents' MO was that whenever the teenager or young adult protests a difficult test is to back off and not let them do it. But now what we're seeing is we've created monsters who cannot function, won't do anything difficult, won't leave the house. And if you listen to Temple Grandin, she'll oh, make it yes. clear autism is no excuse. Autism her book, The Loving Push, I interviewed her about that book. And that's exactly right. what you're talking about is you have to push. You have to push and you have to push pretty hard. And when I talked to her about the labels, I'll never forget. She just said, they're all the same thing. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, it reaches a point. Like when I was being trained, I'm happy to talk to you about labels. I think they're useful for about 15%. But it's just a reinvention of the wheel. The coach or the clinician simply has to know what needs to be done. And I think that also is a good point. That's what defines us as coaches. We're not going to spend a lot of time on labels. We're not going to spend a lot of time going through the DSM. We're not going to spend all this time coming up with the diagnosis. You and I, Jody, we fix the problem. We're not there to pontificate or research. The essence of coaching is we're not going to ask a lot of why questions. We're going to ask a lot of what questions. Yeah. What are you doing? I want to know the why first. No, we want to know the why, but what are you going to do? But the key yes. thing is, what are you going to do about it? Yes. I help people figure out the why, but then that gives us the information that we need to do sure. the why. And I think therapy in general is too focused on the why, and it just keeps people stuck mm -hmm. in the why. And there's a lot of processing the why, but then there's not a whole lot of what now. We understand the why. We know there was trauma, we know there's autism, yeah. whatever the reason someone's coming for therapy, not just autistic stuff or neurodivergent stuff. I realized that I was much more of a coach as a therapist because yeah, sure. people would want to stay stuck in the why for a long time. Yeah. And I think that's why I wanted to have that conversation with you about labels because a lot of people get stuck on the yeah. labels, the why, and it becomes their definition of who they are. It becomes their identity. Mm -hmm. Don't put much into what now then, you know, what right. can we do about this? Exactly. Couldn't agree with you more. So much that can be done. And every bit of research indicates that the population likes higher standards. They like being held to a higher standard and they respond better to it. The top psychology of we're going to peel back the standards 
for no good reason is not a good approach. You said that earlier. Go into a little bit more detail about what you mean by that. Well, when I was getting my graduate degree in special education, one of the main professors I dealt with was a man named Dr. Loring Brinkerhoff. He's not a big autism person. He's a huge learning disability person. Now, looking back to 30 years ago, there's no question a lot of these kids who we were helping who had learning disabilities were also on the spectrum. Looking back, it was blatantly obvious. Totally agree. I didn't even hear the word Asperger's or PDD till 1998. I'd heard of autism. The research we looked at and what was drilled in our heads was that all the population, anyone who's neurologically different, likes very structured, high standards, and they tend to perform better. Mm. I think people just don't take things seriously. If the standard is too low, for example, I also have a specialization working with police. Now, I was warned when you go to do these police training, they're not going to want to be there. They're going to make arm farts. They're going to throw paper airplanes, which they do, (laughs) which I'm fine with. But my reputation as a trainer for police took off like a rocket. Because when I looked at the materials that were out there, they were written on a seventh grade level. It was very patronizing to these police officers who are really very smart, but people often don't think so. So I raised the standard. I started teaching at a graduate school level and all of these bureaucrats told me it would fail. I said, no, and it didn't. So we know that higher standards brought to people gets people to perform at higher standards. Now the question becomes with our population, if it's challenging, what do we do if it's challenging? And this is a population which has a low frustration tolerance. That's the need for a relationship. Why did I work so hard for Barbara Puskar in Kinalan, New Jersey? I had a relationship with her. I didn't want to disappoint her. She had put so much time into me and into rewriting lesson plans and breaking down materials into something tangible. How can I not work hard? And then I realized that the harder I worked, the more the teachers liked me. And the more I got done, the more they raised the bar. I said was, give me more. I see what you're saying. And I think the key there is that you had the standards and you knew what was expected Mm -hmm. of you. And when knowing what's expected of you, it gives you that standard to work toward. I think one of the biggest problems people have in relationships is the expectations are so vague, so blurred. The neurodivergent folks are, I see such motivation and willingness and a desire to show up for their partners, but not knowing how to do that. And then over time, there's this constant unmet expectation from the neurotypical partner has a set of expectations that are just very passively vague. A lot of my neurotypical partners are like, well, if I have to say it, it doesn't count. I'm constantly railing my neurotypical folks for saying, no, 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 no. It's got to be out there. It's got to be spelled out. You've got to communicate. It's got to be spelled out, but then there's an expectation for work on our clients, Bahar. Okay, look, now you have this information. We've given you the why. Go get it done. Go get it done. It's both of them. Both of them have to be able to work toward that. It's so possible. It's so attainable. But for a lot of my folks, it's been years, years of misunderstanding each other. And now they're in the boxing ring. They've become enemies because there's been so much misunderstanding for so many years that both of them just feel criticized and attacked and they don't know who their partner is. Also, conflict can be very hard. That yelling and screaming, which happens in relationships, is very sensory demanding. A lot of our population, they can't handle that arguing and that fighting. 
yes. agree to things they don't really want to agree to. They just want to make it stop. The lie right. just to get out of the conflict. There's so much insecure attachment from the neurotypical partner. And then that pursuit is also overwhelming. I have, I have partners who are just locking their neurodivergent spouse into hours of conversations because of that insecure attachment dynamic. And then you've got the neurodivergent partner just shutting down and just like you said, just saying whatever it needs to be to get out of it. And then the neurotypical partner's like, but he's a liar, you know, or she's a liar. So I think the important thing that I want everybody to hear is that once you start to have that framework, and I think that's where the label is important, is that it's a framework. It doesn't really matter which label you use, whether it's Asperger's, autism, neurodivergence, whatever. It's a framework for you to understand that your brains sure. are different. They're different. And so going about understanding each other, understanding life, understanding the world, understanding language differently. And so you have to be a detective to figure for out. Sure. For sure. What the neurodivergent partner needs is just the right software. We can talk about labels and diagnosis and pop psychology, but I think the point is though that there's a geometric relationship here. When you're neurodiverse, if I give you a skill or a strategy, you're not going to go from one to two. You can go from one to four. That once we give them the right skills, it's amazing the gains we make. I've been able to turn certain people who are neurodivergent into amazing salesmen, which yeah. you wouldn't think would happen. How can you do that? They can do it. It's like you said, having that um, software. I use computer analogies all the yeah. time because so many of my folks are IT. <laughs> it's amazing. I didn't end up in IT. I ended up years beyond me. I should have been IT. I'm really glad you didn't, Dave. Speaking of, so as we wrap up here, do you have any final words? I'm definitely going to have you on the show again. Do you have any final words today? And then also I want you to let people know how to find you. Let's not use deficit model thinking. Let's look at our neurodivergence as a strength. Let's mm -hmm. harness it. And let's live the best lives we can live. And yes, you can get your needs met. You're able to express your needs and get them met. Uh, even a lot of people who aren't in the spectrum struggle with that. I have to do that with everybody. And then in terms of reaching me, the clinic is Triad Psych. Our website is triadpsych.org. And we're now open to clients around the globe with our coaching services. And I would love to help you. I know I've already sent a couple of people to you this week myself. Thank you. Great. Yeah. So thanks again for being on the show. And I really appreciate, and I know that a lot of people are going to really get a lot of value from what you had to share. Well, I want to thank you for having me and you've done amazing work. I've heard about your reputation from so many people. You've helped more couples and you've helped more people have insights into very tough situations. I'm appreciative of that. Thank you. Well, I'm happy to be able to do my part because those of us who are actually living in, in these mixed neurotype relationships, whether it's domestic partnerships or with children or parents or other family members, it's just so Look, important. Sometimes it's just at work too. Enabling people to get along and understand how to work in a yeah. group is difficult. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to all of my guests of season three of the Your Neurodiverse Relationship podcast. These folks are bringing their lives to you to help all of you out there who are trying to figure out your own relationships. If you'd ever be interested in being on a podcast, just email us at gethelp at jodycarlton.com. Also, be sure to visit me online at jodycarlton.com to see all the resources that I have available to you. Until next time.